How many of you have ever uh, been going out somewhere and you noticed, oh, I got something, I got something on my shirt. I, I, I'll just, I'll take care of it. And, and you start to, you start to clean it up. It's a nice shirt and you, you just, you want to dab, right? You don't want to smudge. I, I discovered that the hard way because the, the best way to get something out is to rub, right? Just to, just scrub it in there to, and, and it's not coming out. So you got to scrub harder. I've ruined more shirts. I've ruined more situations where it's a small thing that I'm trying to fix and I'm going to make it better. I've actually ironed ties why I was wearing them because I was so late I didn't have time to take the tie off and, and iron it. And, and it, I think it's the quick fixes. I'm just going to do this and take care of this and it'll make it better. And, and I have a knack for always escalating a situation and, intens- and intentionally making it worse. And then that situation, you're just sort of stuck with it. Um, I, I had a roommate, and uh, we, we were trying to impress some, some friends of ours. We said, hey, why don't you come over? We'll cook for you. And, uh, you know, that's, that's an impressive skill, right? Wow, all this and they can cook. This is amazing. So, you know, ulterior motives, we're going to show our domestic skills. And took a week to clean the place up like we live like this normally, right? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, no, we just do some stuff, stuff away. Planned this out, shopping, got food, blew our whole budget. This is going to be a special time. And as we're, um, as we're preparing things and, and companies in the other room, there's a cockroach running across the kitchen. I'm like, whoa, slam. Nobody saw anything, just flicked it away. Another cockroach. Why tonight of all evenings? And then it's like creep show. It's like the more cockroaches you see, the more cockroaches. They're, they're getting like cocky or something. And there's more that are coming out. And I don't know if you discovered this. Cockroaches like electricity. I, I think it's the magnetic field personally. But there was this giant plug. And it was getting in the way of things. And so I pulled this, this giant plug to move it out of the way. And that was the source of the cockroaches. So we had just started cooking some things and, you know, sous chefing and slicing and dicing. And all of a sudden, there's just this plume of cockroaches. I mean, this this geyser, this this old faithful explosion of cockroaches all up the wall, all over the place. And it's like time stops and there's this shock horror. What are we going to do? And it's a small kitchen. The company's in the other room. First thing you do, shut the door. Okay, containment. That's the first thing. Damage controls, containment. Who, what do we do? Who do we blame, right? So, so containment. And in a moment of genius stupidity... It's like an idiot savant, but it happens all at once. I say, okay, let's get rid of the cockroaches. Now, cockroaches, have, have you ever tried killing cockroaches? They don't go down easily, right? They do not go gentle into that good night. I mean, they rage against the dying of the light, be that a hammer, you know, whatever it is, the cockroaches, they, they keep going, right? They could take a nuclear blast. So I, I knew I had to be decisive. So I grabbed an old aerosol can, and, and there was the, you know, the lighter for the stove, and just homemade flamethrower, didn't even think. Set the cockroaches on fire, which is great, because these were the little ones, not the big ones. That took forever to burn, so I hear. Um, and the little ones, this, this solved one problem brilliantly, but it created two other problems. Because whereas the cockroaches were on the wall, and now the cockroaches were on fire, 
stop, drop, and roll. It's not a cockroach thing because, you know, they can't really get over. And so they just take off. So now we have all these emissaries of fire going all over the kitchen. So now all the cockroaches seem to just leap onto the drapes and leap onto the hot pads. And, and so there's these spot fires going. But the one thing I didn't consider was this was a bachelor pad, i.e. had not been cleaned ever. And so we had sort of gotten into a false sense of security by cleaning the living room and, and the bathroom. And everything else has gone for a boat and you can't go there. The kitchen hadn't been cleaned ever. And so now there's a grease fire. Like the walls, everything now had just touched off. There's grease galore. The pot that, that I was had been heating up on the stove, I couldn't even see. It's disastrous. So my roommate goes to grab a pot of water to throw on the wall. And I grab him. I go, no! And I go, oh, grease fire, grease fire. And so we're panicking now. I mean, it's just all of it is breaking loose. And, and so we're grabbing pot lids now, and we're stamping the, um, the walls, trying to put the fire out. And, and I think he's fanning the flames I'm trying to put out. I'm fanning the flames he's trying to put out. And, and in the midst of this, you know, spider monkey uh, closure, uh, I hear this voice, is everything okay in there? Oh, yeah, 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 just a uh, um, little flambe. Uh, we'll, we'll be right with you here. Um, we did untold damage to that kitchen. Got the windows open. Uh, it, there was smoke. It was disastrous. We're trying to clean this thing up, and it's a nightmare. Because I don't know if you've ever cleaned up uh, uh, fried cockroaches that have been baked into kitchen grease, and then all that set on fire, and then smeared everywhere, and then scraped. Uh, but there was, there was a lot of mess. And what I discovered the next day, because the landlord called that night, hey, is it okay if I come over? No! I mean, um, uh, no, you know, I don't want to inconvenience you. Maybe, maybe, maybe next week sometime. Landlord's coming over that day, and, or the next day. And so we had to clean this thing up. And everything we found to clean only made it worse, only spread the muck around, only, only lifted it up. We needed some heavy-duty cleaner that a friend had told us about, and this would fix the problem, but we had already spent all our money on the food that we burned up when we were cooking the cockroaches. And, and so it was, we were stuck, and, and the more we tried, the, more, the worse it got, and we could not fix it. Title is Solvent, and we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 3. Solvent has two different meanings. Solvent means, one, that you're able to dissolve something, that there's something that is immovable, something that is a part of something, something that is stained. And you use another substance to lift it up, to soften it, to dissolve it, and, and to, to clean it away. And so solvent is you're able to affect change in your immediate area. You're able to, you touch something, you're not affected by it, but it is affected. It is cleaned. It is, it is changed. It is weakened. It, it, is, it is removed. So things can be challenged. Things can be addressed. You're effective in the short term. All the solvents we're trying to use to clean up our mess only made it worse. Solvent has the bigger meaning, your assets exceed your liabilities. You have money in the bank. You're solvent. If you're insolvent, that means you're up to your eyeballs in debt. That means that you're unable to respond to anything in the big picture. You are stuck. And so we found ourselves insolvent in this particular situation in both the immediate, anything we tried to do when ourselves only made it worse, and insolvent in the big picture, the real fix that we needed we were unable to afford because we had already uh, had so many liabilities. And, and I think, and so what was our solution? 
we uh, closed the kitchen door and we put a whole bunch of things in front of it and we made up an excuse to the landlord and we didn't use the kitchen for a few months. Because we, you know, you know we're single guys, we could do that. Um, but I think often that's what we do with our lives. That the more we address an area that's painful, that's dirty, that's stained, that's broken, that's affected, uh, that other people might see, that either may have flaming cockroaches, or maybe we're just trying to prepare a meal, uh, our efforts to fix, our efforts to interdict chain, it smears it around. It, it makes it worse. And then when we find what we truly, truly need, the true surrender, the true engagement, we find we're so committed in other areas, it's difficult. I'm going to share one of the most encouraging stories in Scripture. And this is a story of somebody who had built the most airtight religious kingdom, who had done it all so well for God, that had so much he could claim, God, I did this for you. Look at what an asset I am. Look how solvent I am in being able to use by you. And it couldn't have profited him less. And so this encourages me because if God could work in a character that could get it so wrong so well and could could rewire this person's affections to be our example, then all the compromises, all the mistakes, all the sin, all the misplaced trust and, and priorities that I feel affecting me and casting shadows over my life, I can have just as much hope and just as much confidence of how much God loves me, how much you can know God loves you, and how that can change everything. Now, I have preached this message before, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. I want to look at the behind the scenes. We're looking at Paul, and we're looking at maturity, and Christ is a daily choice. You see how this all comes together at the end. New life needs new values. Now, in, uh, you can follow along in your pew Bibles. I'll have the, the main text up here. But uh, Philippians is a wonderful book because it's the most unlikely book to be written in Scripture. All of them are, if you think about it. But in terms of Paul's church career and what he was doing, Philippians couldn't have gotten off to a worse start. What do we know Paul? What is Paul famous for in history, the Apostle Paul? He's the church planner. He wrote a third of the New Testament. Why? Because all the churches he planted were so messed up, he had to keep writing to them, saying, no, it's not this, it's this, it's Jesus. No, it's not you, it's Jesus. No, it's not me, it's Jesus. And so it fleshes out this reality. And we are here today in no small part because of the work of the Holy Spirit through Paul in establishing these churches that continue to witness. But Paul wasn't there at the beginning. In fact, Paul was so far removed from what God was able to do because he was too good. You see, what Paul had predicated his life on was being more usable for God in the ways that everybody could see. Paul was the expert. Paul was the seminary star. Paul had everything that everybody else wanted in terms of rock star status in church. Uh, he got the greatest education. He had the most promising tutor. He got uh, all the fame when he was the one that rose up and said, I am going to be the face of this, this religious movement, the face of this political movement. Paul, vote for Paul, 2015, um, death to Christians. I, I don't know what his campaign slogan would have been. But it's a sense of anybody preaching a different God than the God that I preach, I'm going to take care of. So he knew scripture better than any of us. He had walked with the people of God. He had sung the Psalms through growing up. He had lived out worship. But his heart was removed in God. 
And so for the first six verses, he lists everything that was his asset, that was his solvency before God. Um, Who were God's chosen people? The Jews. Guess what? I was named after their first king, Saul. Um, I was from the tribe of Benjamin. Look at all the famous Benjamites we have. And, and, And then he just goes on to list his pedigree. I'm important. God needs me. Look at all the stuff God did, and he put me on this pinnacle. And now we get to verse 7. And we have a very, very, very different person writing this. Now, I could tell you that Paul was in prison when he was writing this. I could tell you that Paul had uh, walked with Christ for 30 years when he wrote this. I, I could tell that Paul had experienced near death and beatings and, and things that would have scared you and me, you know, 10 lifetimes worth. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about a person. He's not talking about the experiences that he's had. In fact, he puts it the other way around. In prison, what he wants others to know, saying you might wind up in prison, you might not. I'm checking out soon. You need to focus on Christ. And what he's saying is this. Don't look at my life as I'm the hero. I went to prison and I suffered suffered shipwreck and I was willing to be flogged for Christ. And I did all of these things. And this is the model. Look at Christ. What kind of God would encounter somebody so hard-hearted, so full of murder, so taking the name of God and dragging it through the the mud to justify murder and hate and displacement and just craving selfishness. That's what Paul was doing. He was taking the name of God and justifying his own sin as he was killing Christians. And so what Paul is saying, what kind of God who had so much So many reasons to kill me, so many reasons to hate me, so many reasons to judge me. All the innocent people that God loved that I destroyed. What would God do to me? You know what he did? He transformed my life. He showed me I was worse than dead. And he showed me that wasn't the end of the story. He showed me what God wanted to do with anyone who who just says, Lord, here I am. Take my hand. Paul would write later to a young pastor who's struggling with a difficult church in Ephesus. He wrote to Timothy, and he said, I am am God's utmost example that through me, the chief of all sinners, God, as he shows immeasurable mercy to me, this would be the source of hope for anyone else. You see, the mistake we make, I think, as Christians, the same mistake as non-believers did when looking at Paul, is they look at the end of the story and they think, look at all the things that Paul did, therefore, look how much God loved him. When what Paul... We back on. There we go. Thank you. Um, yeah, I know. It's hard enough to stay awake as it is. Wake up call. Okay, there we go. But whatever gain were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He's using accounting, he's using solvency language here. Gains, loss. This is the word that any bookkeeper in the Greek world would use. I used to think, okay, what is, what is going to really do it for me? Okay, all the things I did for God. So I'm going to work hard and do these things and I'm piling it up. All the prayers that I said, all the money that I gave, all the faithful church attendance that I did, all these things that I pile up for my effect. And this is the, the balance. And every Jew believed in karma. If I balance the scales enough with good works, I'm in. If I don't, eh, 
don't want to be that person. And so there were two main schools of Judaistic thought. The Hillel school, the liberals, uh, they said 51% is enough. 51% obedience is enough. Then there's the Shammai school, the uber conservatives, and they said 99% is not enough. And they argued, how do you follow God? How do you follow God? So Paul grew up in this argument, and he said, I'll show you how to follow God. I'm going to do 110%, and I'm going to keep piling it up, and it's all about me. So for the first six verses, he said, I lived for this. I lived for my ego. I lived for my reputation. I lived for other people's jealousy when I told them about my promotion, when they saw my house, when they saw my bottom line, with the new car that I got, the friends that I have, the clothes that I wear, how trendy and cool I am, how much people seek after me. I valued all of these things, and then I met God, and I stood before his presence, and my shadow was awfully small, and I couldn't believe how much wasted time I put in to all of these things. And so Paul, standing before holy God, knowing he was busted, knowing he had absolutely nothing, he was, he was digging deep. Okay, God, I did these things, but if we're going to balance the scale, okay, okay, where'd it go? Where's all my good works? Where's all those sermons? All that Bible study, all that faithful church attendance. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. And he knew where he stood before God. And then he felt God's hand upon him. The person who's terrified of you right now, the person you were coming to get, he's going to pray for you. And the rest of the journey, you're going to be walking out, coming out of blindness. Now, what we don't see in scripture is between 14 and 17 years, depending on how you date Galatians and Acts, Paul disappeared. Paul had to work through this God that he thought he knew, this God that he was an expert on, this God that he had so much expertise, everybody wanted to be like Mike. Everyone wanted to be like Paul. And he had to work through of saying, everything I thought I understood about God, it wasn't about me, it was about him. And he read the Bible inside out. And he saw, wow, the Old Testament wasn't a mental exercise for me to justify myself. Wasn't me finding the 612 buttons to push in the right order so that God would like me and, and others to do the same. But the story of his glory is a love letter to me. And it shows how he's been patient with people so worse than me and so like me and so better than me. And it gave Paul hope. And he said, I got this all wrong because I got Jesus all wrong. I was persecuting him. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is where we make the biggest mistake of all. Philippians 3, um, 7 to 16 or so is one of the most beautiful, succinct descriptions of the Christian life there is in Scripture. It is absolutely wonderful. And there's all these beautiful words, to know him, to be found in him. I know who I've believed. He's known me. I, I, the surpassing value of knowing him. And Paul is standing in a deep Hebrew tradition with no. As we mentioned before, the, the word yada, it, it in, entail, entails proximity. You know something by being closer to it. What is that? What is that out there? I, I can sort of see what it is. I can squint. As you get closer, as it gets closer, you can make out more. And as it gets closer, you can hear it. You can smell it. You can touch it. There's more proximity. So the closer something is to you, the more you know it. And this, this understanding of know is the basis behind relationship. In marriage, the closer in intimacy, in proximity, relational proximity you are, the more you know someone. And so with physical intimacy, that's a form of knowing. With intellectual, knowing something. With, with emotional, every way you can experience somebody, that's a form of knowing. And so uh, you've heard that the longer you live with somebody, the more you look like them. 
Okay, pets and owners, right? Partners, the longer you live with somebody, the more you look like them. This is scientific fact because your, your, your mind subconsciously mirrors the facial expressions. And this goes for pets too. So choose your breed carefully, right? <laughs> I got a pug and everyone stopped asking me out after a while. I don't know what happened. <laughs> um, so, but, but it's the subconscious mirroring of the one you're closest with. So what Paul is saying here of 30 years of walking with Christ, 30 years of being stripped, 30 years of all the stuff he held so dear, just like sand, giving it away. He said, I have walked in close proximity with God. I have walked intimately with God. Paul, if he was doing the footprints, you know the footprints? I had a dream and there were two sets of footprints by the shore, and one was the Lord and one was mine. But then I went to a more disturbing scene, and the times when there were most storms in life, I noticed but one set of footprints. And I said, Lord, how can this be? Or the times when I needed you most, there was only one set of footprints, you abandoned me. Dear child, said the Lord, it was those times that I carried you. Oh, that's nice, right? Paul would say, I had a wondrous dream. I saw two sets of footprints walking along the beach. And then there was this giant just body slam movement. And then there was this drag marks all over the place. And then there was a sandcastle and someone kicked it over. And it's just this life that's messy and in the mud and lived out. But Paul says it's proximity. It's intimacy. God got his fingernails dirty, scrubbing the dirt off of me. He smelled me. He was that close. And so I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of intimate proximity with my Lord. He had to get close to smell me, to clean me. I had to let him get close. I had to put down my weapons. And so it's a relational knowledge, not head knowledge. You believe God is one, the demons believe and shudder. Okay, straight up knowledge is not helping us. It's experience, it's intimacy. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Uh, that word garbage, it's a swear word in scripture. Um, it rhymes with spit and um, you step in it quite a bit. And that's the word that Paul used. Why? Because no matter what you're going to put in this thing compared to the person of Christ, the person who wants me near even in my unfinished state, that's what everything else seems like in comparison. What I valued most, what I worshipped, what I threw others under the bus to get, my reputation, me, whatever's thought of me, I consider dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Anybody, uh, anybody rent in the city? Anybody buy in the city lately? What determines value? All you realtors out there, three words, right? Location, location, location. Where are you working to be found in this life? Where's your mortgage? Who are you paying? What debt have you mortgaged yourself under to be found somewhere in life, to be found owning something? See, Paul said, location, 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 that I may be found in him. Not having a mailing address of anything in this earth that I can claim is my righteousness, what I did. Hey, look at me. But I may be found in him, the basis of faith. We are really run out of time, so I'll cut to the chase. Second point, experience Christ's power through suffering. 
I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to resurrection from the dead. See, the thing that flipped it for Paul, the relationship, was that all along he was a driven man. This is who God is. This is what God expects of you, and you've got to do this. This is what it is to be a good Hebrew. This is what it is to be a good son. This is what it is to be a good student. This is what it is to be a good Pharisee. And he just marched along, and he did everything well. And the more he succeeded, the more he was driven, the more he had to press forward, the more he was... uh, unable to rest because he wasn't at rest within himself. And so he understood the secret of life is not to avoid suffering, is not to insulate yourself from the slings of others or or from the circumstances of life, but to avail yourself to what God can do in this. All suffering. It doesn't matter whether you're suffering for Christ. You're proclaiming him in a closed country and you're in prison. You could have a disease. You could be unemployed. You could have relational stress. You could be estranged from a family member. There can be all sorts of situations. All suffering is a test of God's goodness. And this is what Paul discovered over 30 years. It wasn't, what did I do to mess up God? Where Where did I miss you? What hidden sin are you punishing me for? What unknown outcome are you just dangling over me in the dark and this won't end until I find your will? Paul realized all of those things were false understandings. But that God enters into the very brokenness, the very suffering that we have, that in sitting with us, we would know the person of Christ. We would have that close proximity and we would understand he suffers as we suffer, because we suffer, when we suffer. That our lives are a lot closer to him than we could actually imagine. And he'd actually want to be us, be with us when we're suffering. close with this. What Paul discovered to set him free in a person and not in a religion. He had mastered the religion. He was a field general in in, uh, Judaism. He had his career all mapped out. He could have coasted and had the most comfortable, allotted, accoladed life. But he saw what he thought was a relationship, what he thought was a person, was a way of justifying himself were slogans, were rules, was a way of uh, holding on to a life that he knew ultimately was broken, more so, so people wouldn't see the cracks. Keeping that kitchen door closed so the landlord wouldn't see how bad things were messed up. And so what Paul discovered is the suffering that happens because of our sin, the suffering that happens because of other sin, the suffering that happens in the brokenness of this life, it reveals. It reveals what we hold dear. What we have done or what Christ is doing in, through, and with us. It heals. It debrides the scar tissue. When we're hurt physically, when we're hurt emotionally, when we're hurt relationally or spiritually, the reaction is we develop scar tissue. We get harder there. We get more numb. And that's a natural, that's how we're made, physically, spiritually, relationally. But what suffering does is it debrides that scar tissue that we'd be able to feel in the sore places and in the broken places more. That we would not be closed up to the touch of God, but we'd be all the more sensitive to it. And there's no easy way to do that. You work work in a hospital and with burn victims and having to debride the skin. It's the most horrible thing you can do. 
but it's the absolutely most necessary thing to do or it'll kill the person. And I think with our hearts as well. God meets us in suffering for greater proximity. And then finally, it's where we let go of ourselves and we realize what we're really holding on to. One of the great tragedies in North American Christianity right now, there's exceptions in Charleston and other areas, is that we really don't need faith, by and large, in the world in which we live, for the, where the rubber hits the road. Now, the reality is we need faith more than we could ever, ever, ever imagine. We're just so naturally insulated from it, we don't really see what it is until that's all that we have. And so what Paul could understand is all the things that were naturally welded to him. God was allowing these 30 years to play out in a world that was broken. That is, the life was throwing, flowing through Paul. He could see, by and large, God's mercy and grace to the least of sinners began and ended with him. That it was this relationship of freedom and it wasn't this drivenness that made him more of a religious person. All sufferings attest to the goodness of God. All suffering is a question of the nearness of God. All suffering is an invitation to the power of God. And this is where we find ourselves. Circumstances are going to change greatly in this church in terms of just, you know, a person standing up here, what we do, what's the vision, what are we about as God, or what are we about as the people of God, what is our vision as a church, how do we align all of these things. And this is necessary, and this is important. And this can be a tunnel of chaos in terms of, well, are we on the same page, are we not, what's, what's going on here? But what I want each person here to know, beyond anything else, is that God loves you. God absolutely loves you. And God absolutely is committed to his bride, the church. And I ultimately don't know what God is doing. Just like Paul had no idea what God was doing. But one thing for sure God did with Paul, God's doing with me, God's doing with us is that he's using the circumstances that we would call suffering or out of control or, or insolvent or, or, or something like that, that we could see it's always and only about a relationship with a person, irrespective of our earning, irrespective of, of our track record and, and, and what we can expect from God or he owes us or whatnot. But it comes down to square one each and every day. His mercies are new. He is for us. He has amazing plans way beyond anything we would settle for. And this is the necessary integral time. No, I'm not going to more text. I just want to show you the picture. Use this example before, and I'm walking down here. Um, how, do, how do you know how old a tree is? You plant it, and you stand there, and you just, with a calendar, as it grows, right? Okay, there's an easier way. Zzz, you cut it in half, and you go, wow, that was a 450-year-old tree. I'm sure glad nothing happened to it. Um, you cut a tree, cross-cut, and you count the rings, right? Is, am I the only one that does this? You, okay, no, I'm not out clear-cutting forests, um, as far as you know. But um, which, which rings do you count, the dark ones or the light ones? Work with me here. Anyone? The dark ones, thank you, yes. Uh, the dark rings are not when the tree grows, and the light rings are when the tree grows. You see, the light, the light growth, that's spring and summer growth. It's all pulpy, and it's fresh, and it's nice, and there's, there's fruit, and it's just it's this wonderful time of growth. And, and that's great, but that's the weak part of the tree. 
The winter, when all the leaves fall off and it's just wise and it doesn't look like anything is going on, that's when the tree is strengthened and strengthened and strengthened. Those are the dark rings. Without those dark rings, without those, those periods of what is going on and it doesn't look like anything, um, the tree would fall over, the tree would die. The, the periods of, of this kind of growth are absolutely, absolutely necessary. Philippians 3, say 1 through 16, is about the dark rings and about Paul recognizing the necessity of uh, letting go of God, the God that he knew, letting go of the light growth and holding on to the dark. The reason I bring this up is there's going to be a period for all of us, hopefully short, um, but indeterminate, uh, where it's going to feel a lot more like the dark growth. Or it's going to feel like, what is God doing? I'm not seeing the leaves or, or what used to be just, you know, fruit and, you know, the, the, the spring-summer growth. And it's all good. And I can see that. And I understand that. And I'm part of that. This might be a season um, where God needs to do some work in all of us. I know he certainly needs to do it in me. And the encouragement that I wanted to bring is this. Even though it might feel like winter, as Paul discovered in prison when he was writing this very letter, or in other prisons, or in shipwrecks, or in beatings, or in discouragement from churches, or whatever it might be, he recognized the value of the hard growth. Because the hard growth is when he let go of his expectations of the way church had to be, or the way people had to be, or the way the timeline had to be. And he could recognize this is exactly and only what God needs to do because of the person of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your infinite patience. And I thank you for the patience which has been strained from everyone here today. I thank you, Lord, in the big picture. In whatever we know of your word, of your truth, of how you've worked in our life, of whatever's going on in the situations that we can change, that we can work in our own power, and the ones that loom large and beyond our control. Lord God, let us not fall into the religious trap of getting back to a place where we were, a place where we felt in control, a place where it made sense. But help us, Father, to be fully in the place where you are, where we can know your closeness, we could know your commitment to us. We could know, yes, it's important how we respond, what we do, but first and foremost, Lord God, it is your heart and your commitment to us. That is the hope we have going forward, individually and as a church. We commit ourselves and you're capable loving, tender, and strong arms in Christ's name. Amen.